Welcome to Everything Yesterday This Morning, a 15 to 20 minute daily recap of headlines you may have missed. Come for the news, stay for the snarky commentary. Good morning and welcome to Friday's edition of Everything Yesterday This Morning. I am your host, literally Heather. I almost didn't bring a show to you today. I have had a couple podcasts this week that have gone a lot longer than you anticipated, and I was exhausted. So, um, however, I felt like I needed to bring a show today because some some stuff has happened. Um, so, good Friday morning to you. I trust that y'all slept well and you're ready to head into Fourth of July weekend with smiles on your face because we are free people. That said, if you are following me on Twitter and you are patiently waiting for a certain firearm to hit the Palmetto State Armory website, be sure to have notifications on because that bad boy is dropping any moment. That said, I did something a little different last night. I shared a thread of ACOG scopes that are all on sale, and I think you guys would benefit from that as well. So I'm going to leave that as the deal of the day for the morning show. I am often talking about the firearms themselves, but a good optic is always going to take your precision to the next level, and Triticon is one of the best in the game. The link to my uh, Twitter thread with all of those deals is in the show description. Please check that out. Um, Okay, so like I said, some big things happened yesterday. The former president of the United States of America disclosed to everyone that the only reason he and his wife received a college education was because they were black. Joe Biden flirted with the notion that he's going to try to circumvent the Supreme Court with an executive order to keep racism alive. Not only are you not black if you don't vote for him, you're never going to be able to go to college or get a job because you're not capable of earning your way there as a black or Hispanic person. And Mike Pence went to kiss the ring of the king and appease his neocon overlord. Yes, yes. Everyone probably already knows these things happen. And y'all know I don't like to harp on things that are mainstream news. I like to bring you the quiet, undiscussed things. Like, say, for example, the fact that the Supreme Court made another ruling that no one is talking about. But I would argue is just as, if not more important. The court made a decision in Graf v. DeJoy, ordinarily, The eight most alarming words to progressives that can appear in a Supreme Court decision are Justice Alito delivered the opinion of the court, because that means (laughs) the majority of the court ruled in opposition to whatever the Democrats want. But um, this is especially true in religion cases. Alito is the author of the court's decision, Burwell v. Hobby Lobby, which gave religious conservatives a right, not just religious conservatives. How the article's worded, but gave citizens a right to ignore federal laws that they object to on religious grounds. That's also not exactly true. It just gave them the ability to use religious grounds to oppose, not ignore. But Alito's newest opinion in a case concerning religion in the workplace does not take sides in America's culture wars the same way he did in the Hobby Lobby and similar cases. It's, it's not sides, it's the Constitution. I'm sorry, I keep having to correct this because I didn't realize the article was like so, so swayed. Um, indeed, 
This was actually a unanimous opinion joined in full by the court's Democratic appointees that pretty much repudiates a line in the Supreme Court decision. Graf v. DeJoy announces a new rule that will govern employees who seek accommodation for their religious beliefs from their employer. Groff's new rule states that the religious accommodation request should be granted unless they impose a hardship on the employer that would be substantial in the context of an employer's business. That said, the actual holding of Groff, the most that most requests for religious accommodation should be granted and that an employer cannot dodge this obligation because it might impose minimal costs on the employer is largely benign. Indeed, it is likely to benefit many employees who make reasonable requests for accommodations that might have been denied under an earlier, less employee-friendly rule. The Graf case specifically involves a postal worker who wanted to be exempted from working on Sundays because of his religious beliefs. Although the post office typically does not deliver mail on Sundays, the Postal Service contracted with Amazon in 2013 to deliver Sunday packages. The post office claimed that this worker's request could not be accommodated because he worked in an office with only a few employees, and exempting one of these employees from Sunday work would place too much of a burden on the other workers, who would have to pick up his Sunday shifts. The Supreme Court, however, did not resolve whether this particular request for a religious accommodation should have been granted. Instead, it sent the case back down to the lower courts to reevaluate this request in light of the court's newly announced more pro-worker rule. Nearly half a century ago, Transworld Airlines versus Hardison, the Supreme Court announced that an undue hardship exists if accommodating such a request would require an employer to bear more than a de minimis cost. The Latin phrase de minimis refers to a burden that is so small or trifling as to be unworthy of consideration. Pretty much everyone involved in this case, including all nine justices, agree that this, quote, more than a de minimis cost is standard is wrong. As Alito writes in common parlance, a hardship is, at minimum, something hard to bear. So an employer shouldn't be able to show an undue hardship merely by showing that they will be hit with a trifling expense. Graf repudiates this much-loathed line from Hardison, and it replaces Hardison's more-than-a-de-minimis-cost framework with a new rule, which requires courts hearing cases about religious accommodations to ask, quote, whether a hardship would be substantial in the context of an employer's business in the common sense manner that it would use applying any such test. This new rule is fairly obviously more in line with what federal law actually says than the old de minimis framework. But because it is a new rule and a vague one at that, it is likely to inspire a wave of litigation from employees testing what this new rule means. Are you a soda drinker? Is your drink of choice Diet Coke? Well, not anymore. A popular artificial sweetener used in thousands of products worldwide, including Diet Coke, ice cream, chewing gum, is to be declared a possible cancer risk to humans, according to reports. 
The World Health Organization's cancer research arm, the International Agency for Research on Cancer, has conducted a safety review of aspartame and will publish a report next month. It is preparing to label the sweetener as possibly carcinogenic to humans. That would mean there is some evidence linking aspartame to cancer, but that it is limited. The IARC has two more serious categories, probably carcinogenic to humans and, in fact, carcinogenic to humans. The move is likely to prove controversial. The IARC has faced criticism for causing alarm about hard-to-avoid substances or situations. And, like, even if they're hard to avoid, they still may cause cancer. Like, I think that's important to note. It previously put working overnight and consuming red meat into its probably cancer-causing situations um, and listed using mobile phones as possibly cancer-causing. The IARC safety review was conducted to assess whether or not aspartame is a potential hazard based on all the published evidence a person familiar with the matter said. However, it does not take into account how much of a product a person can safely consume. Following this, the joint FAO World Health Order experts on food additives will update its risk assessment exercise on aspartame, including the reviewing of the acceptable daily intake and dietary exposure assessment for aspartame. The result of both evaluations will be made available together on July 14th. Aspartame has been widely used since the 80s as the tabletop sweetener and in products such as diet drinks, chewing gum, breakfast cereals, and cough drops. It is authorized for use globally by regulators who have reviewed all the available evidence and major food and beverage makers have for decades defended their use of it. The food industry expressed serious concerns about the reports on Thursday. They said IARC is not a food safety body, said Francis Huntwood, the Secretary General of the International Sweeteners Association. Uh, no, Francis, they're a cancer research body, and they're probably about to tell everyone that you guys have been poisoning them. Aspartame is one of the most thoroughly researched ingredients in history, with over 90 food safety agencies across the globe declaring it safe, including the European Food Safety Authority, which conducted the most comprehensive safety evaluation of aspartame to date. Food safety expert versus cancer expert was not on my bingo card, and I'm ashamed of myself for it. The International Council of Beverages Association's Executive Director, Kate Lopeman, suggested the move could needlessly mislead customers into consuming more sugar rather than choosing safe, no and low sugar options. There is existing evidence that raises questions about the potential impact of aspartame on cancer risk. A study in France involving about 100,000 adults last year suggested those who consumed larger amounts of artificial sweeteners, including aspartame, had a higher cancer risk. A study from the Ramazzini Institute, Ramazzini Institute, who knows, 
It's another name that Heather can't pronounce. In Italy, in the early 2000s, reported that some cancers in mice and rats were linked to aspartame. So, with all of that being said, it sounds like the science is super settled. We should know. And But, I, I mean, I think that it's at least noteworthy to acknowledge the increase in cancer in people over the course of time. Like, is it just because we know it's there now and we can look for it? Or did this even exist before we started, you know, changing food and stuff like this? It's curious. The Informed Consumers Act, a new law that aims to curb organized retail theft and the sale of counterfeit and harmful products on online platforms, takes effect Tuesday as more retailers blame theft as a reason for lower profits. The new law requires online marketplaces such as Amazon and eBay to verify and share information on third-party sellers that handle a high volume of transactions on their platforms in an effort to deter bad actors from selling stolen or harmful goods. If the companies fail to get in line, they could face more than $50,000 in fines for each violation. The bipartisan legislation, which stands for Integrity, notification, and fairness in online retail marketplaces passed in December as part of an omnibus spending bill. More than a year after it was introduced by Jan Schakowsky and Gus Bilirakis, the goal of the INFORM Consumers Act is to add more transparency to online transactions and to deter criminals from acquiring stolen, counterfeit, or unsafe items and selling them through those marketplaces. I wonder what unsafe means because that seems fairly vague and arbitrary. How is that determined? How do you determine stolen or counterfeit goods? Well, counterfeit, of course. Anyway, the Federal Trade Commission, which will be tasked with enforcing the law, along with state attorneys general, said on its website, now, How exactly they plan to monitor and track this is going to be fascinating. How are they going to prove it's stolen goods? The act also makes sure online marketplace users have a way to report suspicious conduct concerning high-volume third-party sellers. So not only are the companies monitoring you, users now can inform on you. Your neighbors, your friends. How very Third Reich of you. Don't get me wrong. I don't like the idea of people stealing from large market retailers and then reselling that stolen goods property to make a profit. I also do not like the government passing laws that will have pretty ridiculous consequences and are incredibly difficult to enforce. The law comes after trade associations and retailers lobbied Congress about an alarming uptick in retail theft, and they say that was driven by lax regulations governing third-party sellers and verification processes on online platforms. Nope, that, that is not what drove this situation. They claim organized crime groups steal merchandise from stores and then resell it on marketplaces, typically at a lower amount than the sticker price. So you'll pass laws to negatively impact law-abiding citizens, but decriminalizing theft 
under certain dollar amounts probably was not a very good idea, was it? Under inform, online marketplaces can no longer turn a blind eye to criminal actors using their platforms to sell stolen and counterfeit goods. The FTC and state attorneys general will be empowered to hold these platforms accountable and consumers will also have their own reporting mechanism to flag suspicious activity. For retailers, Inform's implementation means they have more support and partners in the fight against organized retail crime. Or you could just arrest the people that are stealing all of your stuff and keep them in jail. When the bill was first introduced, it faced criticism for being overly broad and burdensome to small businesses. I agree. In a December blog post, eBay said it spearheaded efforts to modify the bill so to strike so it strikes an appropriate balance to increase transparency and safety for consumers online while also protecting seller privacy, which it should. However, online marketplaces are now required to collect, verify and disclose certain information about third-party sellers that have high transaction volumes on their platforms. Oh, you're having a successful business and you're not one of these uh, companies that petitioned Congress to pass a law? We're going to look into you and find a reason why you're doing bad things. Many of the online marketplaces subject to the legislation are national household names, but smaller, more niche platforms with relevant sellers and volume are covered. The FTC and states will share enforcement authority of the INFORM Act. Marketplaces found to have run afoul of the law could face civil penalties of $50,120 per violation. State attorneys general and other state officials can also file actions in federal court that could result in higher penalties from damages, restitution, or other compensation, the FTC said. It is not clear how the law will be enforced because it never is. They like passing this shit and having no clue how it's going to work. Or if the FTC will actively seek out violations or only respond to complaints made through the new reporting systems. A week before the measure took effect, the FTC sent a letter to 50 online marketplaces about their new obligations under the law and reminded them of the penalties associated with violations. This is ridiculous as far as I'm concerned. It's just another way. I I just feel like it's another way for government entities to find out where people are making money so that they can find a way to tax it. I think that they see these uh, marketplaces and... um, uh, these these different avenues where people are selling goods uh, as a place to deem profit so that they can tax those individuals. This kind of, for me, coincides with the, uh, the oh, you made $600 on Cash App. We have to tax you on that now. Like that, that type of behavior, they just want more money from you. Oh, you sold your grandma's armoire and you made $2,500? Oh, we're going to tax that. We need 50% of that. Did you know that federal bureaucratic employees might be my least favorite people on the planet? I can't imagine that you've gotten that impression from listening to my show, but let me enlighten you on a reason why. 
This is just one example of one. A top advisor to Anthony Fauci at the National Institute of Health admitted that he used a personal email account in an apparent effort to evade the strictures of the Freedom of Information Act, according to records obtained by congressional investigators probing the origin of COVID-19. I know many people are to the point where they're like, COVID doesn't even matter anymore. I don't care. It's played out. Whatever. The problem and, and why I'm still talking about this and why I think this is relevant to the American people is because this was an initial biological attack on certain populations, old, sick. What if we don't hold the people accountable that took these actions and put us in the position where they literally shut our country down for three years? If we don't put those people on blast and hold them legally accountable for what they did to the American people, then we are giving the green light for people to continue this behavior moving forward. We are saying, oh, okay, well, you did fuck up. You did do bad things, but just don't do it again. Let me slap that hand. Um, so I'm going to keep talking about it. Uh, I'm getting a migraine, so I cannot see all the words on my screen right now. I have, anyway. The official also expressed his intention to delete his emails in order to avoid media scrutiny. Quote, as you know, I try to always communicate on Gmail because my NIH email is FOIA'd constantly, wrote David Morins, a high-ranking NIH official. In a September of 2021 email, one of a series of email exchanges that included many leading scientists involved in the bitter COVID origins debate. Quote, Stuff sent to my Gmail gets to my phone, he added, but not my NIH computer. After noting that his Gmail account has been hacked, or had been hacked, however, he wrote to the group to say that he might have to use his NIH email account to communicate with them instead. Don't worry, he wrote. Just send it to any of my addresses, and I'll delete anything I don't want the New York Times to see. Morins is a 25-year veteran of NIH who serves as a senior scientific advisor to the director of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases. Guess who that was at the time? Fauci. Other scientists on the email exchanges include Peter Daszak of EcoHealth Alliance, Robert Gary of Tulane University, Edward Holmes, of the University of Sydney in Australia, Christian Anderson of Scripps Research, Angela Rasmussen, who works at the Vaccine and Infectious Disease Organization in Canada. All of these individuals have been extremely outspoken proponents of the natural origin theory of COVID's emergence. Jason Gale, a journalist at Bloomberg, also participated in the email exchanges, which were first obtained by investigators from the Republican-led Select Subcommittee on the Coronavirus Pandemic. Color me shocked, absolutely shocked, that a bunch of people with financial interest to lie are going to extensive links to 
to hide their actions and conversations that may expose them for the frauds that they are. Guess what I'm equally shocked by? The notion that they probably all still have their jobs. The email Morins wrote concerning FOIA, which was sent from his Gmail account, contradicted a footer under his signature line. Important. For U.S. government-related email. Please also reply to my NIAID address. Morins did not immediately respond to a request for comment. Shocker. Scott Amy, the general counsel at the Nonpartisan Project on Government Oversight, said the conduct described in Morin's email could potentially violate agency regulations, including the Department of Health and Human Services email records management policy and potentially civil and criminal record retention laws. Could possibly? Well, he can just say he was discussing yoga grandkids and his daughter's wedding. He should be good to go. That's the get-out-of-jail-free card, right? The email that contains Morin's statements was part of a broader exchange in which Morin's and his scientist correspondents denounced media coverage by The Intercept and other publications concerning the origins of COVID and harshly criticized those who took who take seriously the possibility that the virus emerged from a research accident in Wuhan, China. They also laid out their own possibility and argument in favor of a natural origin for the virus. The lab leakers are already stirring up bullshit lines of attack that will bring more negative publicity our way, which is what this is about, a way to line up the gain-of-function attack on Fauci or the risky research attack on all of us, wrote Daszak in one email on September 7th. Documents in the possession of the subcommittee, he wrote, suggest that you may have used your personal email to avoid transparency in the Freedom of Information Act, potentially intentionally deleted federal records, and acted in your official capacity to disparage your fellow scientists, including by encouraging litigation against them. Committee also highlighted a July 2021 email sent by Morins in which he described getting approval from Tony, an apparent reference to Fauci, to give an interview to National Geographic about the origin of COVID. For many months, I have not been approved to talk about the origins on the record, but today, to my total surprise, my boss Tony actually asked me to speak to the National Geographic. On the record about origins, Morins wrote at the time. I interpret this to mean that our government is lightening up, but that Tony doesn't want his fingerprints on origin stories. The committee in its letter said that the email raises concerns that you may have knowledge or information, suggesting that Dr. Anthony Fauci wished to influence the COVID-19 origins narratives with his, without his fingerprints. This is all very troubling, wrote Wenstrup in the letter to Morins, and raises serious concerns. The select subcommittee has asked Morins to produce a variety of additional records, including from his personal email account, and please sit for an interview. Asked. You asked him. That's not how this works. You just go take it, like you do to every other normal American. You crawl through every single phone, 
text message, email, social media that that man has, and you make his life a living hell. He's a government employee. He doesn't have any expectation of privacy since the American people are his employers. I look forward to you subpoenaing Google to hand over every email that that man has ever sent and received in the last five years. There is clearly probable cause established for a warrant. I've seen how you guys do FOIA requests. Can't imagine how easy it would be for you to get this information. So frustrating. Okay, go check out those optics at Palmetto State Armory. Turn on notifications on Twitter if you're waiting for that Saber AR-10. Otherwise, tonight we will have Liberty Happy Hour starting at 8.30 Eastern Standard Time. Please come join us there for the debate and discussion on all of the happenings of this week. It should be a fun time this evening with everything that's happened. Um, And in addition to that, I hope you guys have a great, most of you will be celebrating 4th of July this weekend. Have a great weekend. Um, I love you guys. You guys take care and have a great day. If you like today's show, be sure to subscribe and turn on notifications so you never miss an episode. Also, please don't forget to check out shouseinthehouse.com and never forget that free men do not need permission from any government. Have a great day.